Well, this morning, we need to talk about sin. And don't worry, I'm not going to be pointing out people individually and naming. It's not the name it and shame it Sunday. That's next week, if you want to avoid that. No, we don't do that sort of thing here, thank the good Lord. Uh, but there's a problem when we begin to talk about sin. You know how you can say one word and the person that you're talking to thinks of something completely different? If I said the word ball right now, what do you think of? Uh, my head. Uh, not bald. That's what it says on my license, by the way. It doesn't, it says hair color. It says B-A-L. Ball. I didn't know that was a thing. But if I say ball, some people are going to think of a round object you bounce. Some people might think of a dance. Some people might think of balling. You know, you say one word and we think of lots of different things. The same is true of sin. And so it makes it difficult for us sometimes to have meaningful conversations around this topic of sin because it needs a little bit more uh, definition. I think sometimes we misunderstand and misrepresent sin. When I grew up, I think I understood sin this way. It was the fun things that we weren't allowed to do. <laughs> right? It was kind of like dancing and movies and girls or something like that. I don't know. It kind of went along those lines. Uh, when my parents came to faith in Christ, uh, they became very, very strict for a period of time in my growing up years. And so... Certain music was banned, certain activities were banned, certain things all in the name of keeping me from sin, right? And uh, so that just becomes, makes those things a little more exotic, a little bit more uh, tempting in some ways, because we name these things as sinful. But we've also done an interesting thing in the church. Sometimes when we talk about sin, we decide to pick on a particular sin, and we name that as the worst sin. Don't we do that? As you look at the history of the church over time, and we pick this sin or we pick that sin, depending on where you are in your generational experience. Uh, some things when you're younger that were clearly named as sins have kind of faded to the background in favor for other things that we now name as sinful. Do you know why we do that? Because we like to be able to point to something and say, well, at least I'm not doing that right? And so we have these pet sins that we, we uh, pick and we name as the church. And I think it's a really bad habit. And it does a disservice to the gospel when we name certain sins and isolate them and then focus on them. Or if we don't name sins as dancing in movies or we misdirect and uh, point to one particular sin, sin then just becomes chocolate cake, Right? You ever seen that? Sinfully delicious in our advertising. And, and we trivialize sin. We do weird things with sin that way too. We make sin something that's kind of playful and fun. And so we do all these things with sin. So what is sin? What are we talking about as we approach the subject and before we read the text, uh, the passage today? Well, there's lots of words that are used in both the Old Testament and New Testament to talk about sin, and we don't have time to go into all of them today. There's words that we translate as transgression, it's a particular way of breaking the law, 
You transgress against the law. There's another word that we use, iniquity. We don't use that too often today, but iniquity is, comes from a word that literally means to, to bend over, and so it's a, a bending of God's law or a twisting of God's will. We, there's a, another word that we'll translate as rebellion, which is just this willful act against God, and, and that's sin as well. But the most common words in Hebrew and Greek for sin in general, chata and hamartia, really mean missing the mark or falling short. And by themselves, they don't, they don't hold a moral connotation. In the Old Testament, it talks about the, uh, the guys that had the slingshots like David when he was a shepherd. And if they shoot their rock and they miss their target, it's chata, it's missing the mark. They've missed it. And in the New Testament, if you're, if you're shooting a bow and arrow and, and you miss your mark, you miss your target, you fall short, right? Hamartia. This is what sin is. It's a falling short. It's a missing the mark. The New City Catechism, you can look it up later if you're curious about it. It's kind of a modern attempt at uh, catechism. And this is how it defines sin kind of wraps all of these words up into one definition. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. Think about that for a moment. It's rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. Rebelling against him by living without reference to him. I think that's important because we, we do that as well, even though we might name God. We live in the world without reference to God or not being or doing what he requires in his law. So that's the falling short part. And this results in our death and the disintegration of all creation. That's the consequences of sin. So I'm going to read that all together. I should have put it on screen. I forgot to get it to Samuel in time. We'll put it up later, next week. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. Do you feel a little bit of the weight of sin on us? We're meant to this morning, to feel a little bit of the weight of sin. And so as we look at the origin stories in Genesis, we are going to look this morning at original sin. And even though the word sin is not mentioned, it's on display for us. It's descriptive as we go through the story and we get a real sense of what sin is and what the consequences of sin are. But I want to recap, but just right before we read the passage, and we are going to read this morning, another long, wonderful passage out of Genesis chapter 3, but I just want to recap. In the very beginning, in Genesis 1, we learn some fundamental things that we need to hold on to, especially as we talk about sin. Here are some of the things, and these were mentioned in Keith's prayer, and this is why I loved it so much. First of all, God is, <laughs> that God exists. That's the fundamental declaration, the assumption that's made right at the beginning, and because God is, we are, right? And so that's one thing. The second thing is this, that God created a good world, that there was a goodness in creation. You said it with me as we read through the passage last week. It is good. It is good. It is good over and over, right? And there's, it's, it's so fascinating to go through all those good phrases. 
You know, there's one day in creation that God didn't say it was good. Do you know which day it is? Monday. Does anybody agree? Probably. And, and Tuesday, for some reason, gets two goods. And so, honestly, a lot of Jewish weddings take place on Tuesday because it's twice blessed. So, but the, the, the idea is that there is goodness in creation. And the third truth I want us to hold on to as we talk about sin is that humanity, you and I, are made in God's image. It doesn't mean that this is what God looks like, but we're made in God's image in that we have representative authority in the world, that we represent God. But we also have a certain capacity, capacity for beauty, truth, and goodness that we have within us because we are made in God's image. Why do I, I point that out as a recap? Those three things, God is, the world is created good, and we're made in God's image. Because I want to say this, sin is not the first thing that the Bible says about us. It's not the first thing that the Bible says about you and me. And that's really important for us to hold on to. I know that, again, growing up, I, I, I came to find that my prime identity was that I was a sinner. We went to a very strict uh, brethren, Plymouth Brethren Assembly, and I heard it every, every Sunday, three times a day. We'd go for early morning breaking of the bread, and then family service, and then gospel service in the evening. And every time I heard it, you are a sinner. And I believed it. And in a lot of our statements of faith, thankfully not the one that we use here at Bonavista Baptist, but that used to be the first thing we'd say about humanity. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And while that's a truth, it's not the first truth. The first truth is that we are part of God's good creation made in his image. And we have to hold on to that even as we begin to talk about sin because that's where God starts with us. And I think if we begin to understand that, maybe the way that we treat one another will change. <laughs> because if we treat one another according to our sin, then we end up in judgment. But if we begin to treat one another as part of God's good creation and made in his image, I wonder how that would change my relationships, my relationships with my neighbors with that guy that starts his truck at four in the morning and lets it idle for half an hour. With those kind of things that you begin to wonder. You know, I, all, I only see that guy through what I perceive to be his sin. What if God, by his grace, could change my perspective so that I can see that person and whoever else you're thinking of right now, because I know you are, see that person as part of God's good creation made in his image. Would that change the way that we interacted with people. So, as we begin to talk about sin, I want to point out that it's not the first thing that God talks when he talks about us, but it is an important thing. So, are you ready? We're going to read Genesis chapter 3, and we are reading the whole chapter. Because you can't just read part of this story, you've got to read the whole thing. So, I think it's going to be on screen, or you can turn in your Bibles to that. Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? 
Of course, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. I shouldn't say it like that. Naked. <laughs> Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked, Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. <laughs> then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen your, the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains." By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you are made from dust and to dust you will return. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed a mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. Wow. What profound implications in this story as we work through it together and we don't have time to enter into every aspect of it. So I hope that again, this whets your appetite to go back and review and pray through and discuss together uh, to explore because this is foundational to who we are 
and how we are called to operate in this world. Now, we could spend a lot of time on certain questions, and I'm sure you have all kinds of interesting questions, like, where is the Garden of Eden? I remember a time when just, I was so curious, I tried to map it out, try to find it. Some people think they have found it. It's not Edmonton, apparently, but... <clears throat> or other questions like, you know, did the snake have legs before the fall? We wonder about that, or, or does anybody ever you know, question just this talking snake that Eve seems completely comfortable with? That's the part that would have freaked me out in the whole story. Or sometimes we, uh, we ask the question, what kind of fruit was it? I want to know, is it, was it an apple? No, probably not. Was it a fig? What, what kind of fruit did, did Eve take and, and give to her husband, Adam? Or we ask philosophical questions like, did God know that Adam and Eve would fall when he created them? And if so, does that? And we go down those lines too. Now, if you have time on your hands, feel free to explore those questions. And some of them are important, some of them are interesting, and some of them are a sheer distraction from what this story is all about. And that's why I'm not going to spend a lot of time on some of those. In fact, I want to give you a key that I hope will help unlock this important story about Adam and Eve in the fall. And the key is this. I think we're invited to view this story as a kind of sacred mirror. We're meant to look there and not say, Adam and Eve, you messed it up for all the rest of us. I don't think that's really the point. I think the point is we look and say, ooh, I'm Adam or I'm Eve. I'm there. I can see myself. And as we go through the story, I think it's actually pretty easy to see ourselves in this story as Adam and Eve. This is the nature of humanity. We have a thousand good choices, one bad choice. And what do we choose? The wrong one. It's like, have you ever seen someone put up a sign that says, do not turn off this switch. There's one actually right out here. I'm not going to point to it. But because I walk by it and I'm so tempted to turn that switch off, I want to know what's going to happen. So, you know, someone tells you something to do and you want to do the opposite, right? It's part of kind of human nature. We see ourselves in the story. Or when we do sin and we feel that shame, that guilt, and we just, we want to hide. And we know that hiding isn't the best thing for us, but we do it anyway and we try and cover it up and it just gives power to our sin, but we see that in Adam and Eve too. Or the tendency to pass the buck when we're finally caught, right? Uh, it's always someone else's fault. And, and you notice that Adam and Eve, they actually were blaming God for this. That woman that you gave me, that you gave me. In other words, it's your fault. Or it, it, that snake that you made, that serpent, that's, it's your fault for making that in the first place. We're always the victim. When it comes to our sin, we don't like to own it, do we? And so we find this as well. And so I think it's fairly easy to see ourselves in this story, and I think we're meant to, because it reveals something of our human condition. And we can't experience salvation until we recognize the sin that is within us. And this is what's going on. And so the story gives us a kind of anatomy of sin, or maybe a trajectory of sin, Sin starts with temptation. Did God really say? Temptation always comes with a lie. Some kind of lie. Some kind of deception. Some kind of maybe half-truth. Some kind of promise. 
if only you had this, you would be fulfilled. It's like Ford truck ads on TV, right? You ever notice that? It appeals to the manly man. You see the Ford truck coming along and they're chucking stuff on the back of the truck. They're driving over rough ground and it's all manly men. You're not a manly man unless you have a Ford truck. Built Ford tough, right Doug? Yeah, that's why we buy them. And so it appeals to something. It says you're not complete unless you have this. And that's what's happening in this temptation, right? You're not complete unless you have this. Imagine what would happen if you had this. But temptation isn't powerful unless we have something in us, a desire, a desire for something, a desire that says, I do want power. I do want something more. And that sense of greed or lust within us, that's what temptation plays on. In fact, Jesus, when he comes to talk about sin, doesn't make it easier for us. He actually makes it harder. Jesus says, you haven't committed murder? Good for you, bud. But have you had anger in your heart against your brother without cause? Then you're a murderer. <laughs> Jesus makes it even harder for us because he drives at the motives. He drives at what's, what's happening in our hearts. And so this is what happens to sin. Temptation appeals to desire, which leads to action. And whether that action is in our thoughts or our hearts or actual or physical action, and it involves taking something that's not ours, that doesn't belong to us. That's the nature of sin. And then finally, it leads to consequences. Temptation appeals to desire, which leads to action that delivers consequences. Even if we're never caught, there are consequences to our sin. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, gives a summary of what I've just said and what we see unfolding in Genesis chapter 3. James says this, Remember when you're being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from your own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. That's a summary of what we've just read together in Genesis chapter 3. And it's this trajectory of sin. But today, I'm not going to focus on all of those aspects of sin. I just want to focus on kind of that last one, the consequences. Because I think it's when we understand the consequences of sin, we see why it's so important to understand it and why it's so important to address it. Some of you know, will know the name Paul Stevens, perhaps. Paul Stevens is a professor at Regent College, and he was my mentor and uh, reader for my thesis while I was there. And uh, he's the one that pointed this out to me and lots of others, that in the Genesis narrative, in those first three chapters of Genesis, we, as image bearers, people made in God's image, have three full-time jobs. You thought you were tired now, having one job. Now you have three full-time jobs. And it's important for us to understand our three full-time jobs in order to understand the effects of sin. Our three full-time jobs are this, according to Paul Stevens. One job is creation care. That Adam and Eve were put 
in the garden to tend the garden, to cultivate the garden, to do something with it. This was a, a full-time occupation, and it was meant to bring delight and purpose. And, and any time that we get our hands in the soil, I think we see that. But any time we're involved in creative processes, we see that too. This is part of our calling as human beings, is creation care. A second full-time job, he says, is community building. The one thing that God said was not good is that Adam was alone. And so Eve was brought to him. And when Adam saw Eve, what did he say? Whoa, man, right? No, that's a joke. You'll get it later. Um, no, he, said, he looked at Eve and he noticed the similarities with Eve rather than the differences. Do you see that when we read through the passage? He, he noticed the similarities. He said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is one like me. There's this beautiful harmony and equality and unity as both male and female made in God's image form community together. And that's part of our job is to be forming community. That's part of our occupation. And then the third one is probably the most important, perhaps, and that is communion with God. Creation care, community building, and communion with God. That's our purpose. That's why we're here. That's, that's how God has designed us. And we see all of that in the passage that we read. But this one act of rebellion, this sin that Adam and Eve um, have, have uh, action that they have done, causes both of them to fall short of their calling. Causes both of them to fully realize, to, to fail to fully realize their true humanity, because it interferes with the jobs that they're called to do. When they sin, do you notice that their relationship with creation is broken? Work now becomes a burden. <laughs> it's by sweat and toil. It's not a delight. <laughs> it's not, not the sense of, of gardening or, or of cultivating uh, the creation. It becomes a burden. And sin, that's what sin does to us. It slants, it skews, it twists our work so that our work becomes a burden. Their relationship to creation is broken. You notice the other thing that we read in the passage. Their relationship to one another is broken as they blame one another. And as it says, they, they are going to grasp for control. The, the wife is going to try and control the husband and the husband will dominate the wife. That's not the way that God intended. That's not how God planned for us to exist. But when sin enters, community breaks down. And, and this kind of thing is broken. But also their relationship to God is broken as eventually they are cast out of the garden. Where, where once time they delighted in walking with God, now they're afraid of God and they feel shame. So all those great full-time jobs, creation care, community building, and communion with God, when sin enters, it interrupts, it destroys, it breaks these relationships. And that's why God makes such a big deal about sin. Because he's got a wonderful, glorious plan for us. And we won't realize our full potential as human beings unless we follow along his path instead of choosing our own path. And that's what we find in the story. Sin leads to brokenness. And remember, we're not talking about dancing and movies and girls and chocolate cake. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about greed and lies and lust 
and thirst for power and gluttony and inhospitality and injustice. All of these things and so much more that I'm sure you could name leads to the breakdown of our family and community as we grasp at power. Leads to the rape of creation as we seek to fulfill our own greed. Leads to a kind of functional atheism among those who profess to know God but live as if he doesn't exist. It breaks down these relationships. But in the end, and if you heard nothing else, hear this, and this again is part of what Keith alluded to in his prayer. In the end, sin is simply a failure to love. It's a failure to love as we should. Much later on in the story, as we journey through and into Exodus, uh, the law is given. This all happened before the law, right? But then the law is given, so it makes it really clear what God intends for us. But that whole law is summarized both in the Old Testament and by Jesus by two key statements, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love one another as you love yourself, right? That's the simple rule that we're to follow, is to love. And so sin is when we do not love. It's a failure to love. When we do not love God by keeping his commands, we sin. And when we do not love others by treating them as God's image bearers, we sin. So as we conclude this morning, there's lots we could get into, and I hope you explore this a bit more. But part of the key to this message is this, that just as sin is not the first word spoken about humanity, it's also not the last word. Thank God. <laughs> Sin is also not the last word. There's so much grace in this passage. If you look at the passage and read it through again when you go home, you'll notice that Adam and Eve aren't terminated immediately. It was said, if you touch it, you're going to die. But you know what? God doesn't terminate them immediately. Instead, he gives them the promise of children. And in chapter 3, verse 15, the promise of the seed of the woman which most people would say is fulfilled in Jesus. So the promise of a future, the promise of a hope that carries through. So instead of terminating them, instead of God gives them hope and a future. And then God makes them some designer leather pants. Right? <laughs> because those fig leaves that they sewed together were not so good. <laughs> I mean, they hadn't had any classes or any instructions. Uh, Lululemon wasn't around, and so they didn't have that. Um, but, but God ends up sacrificing part of his creation in order to clothe Adam and Eve. And just think of that for a minute. Up, up till now, nothing has died in the story. right? It's, it's only been creation and goodness. And now God is taking something of his good creation and sacrificing it in order to clothe Adam and Eve. And that sacrifice points us to Jesus, points us to the Lamb of God who would come and take away the sin of the world. There's grace in the story because just as the first word isn't sin, the last word isn't sin when it comes to God's grace and God's favor. So while it's true that all have sinned and fall short of the, of the glory of God, it's also true that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And while it's true that the wages of sin is death, it's also true that the gift of God is eternal life. 
And so we're told in the New Testament, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you see us and know us completely, and yet you are not ashamed. In fact, you respond to us with such grace, such love, such compassion. So much so that as far as the east is from the west, so, so far have you removed our sins from us. Thank you for doing that on our behalf in Jesus, your son. And Father, as we've prayed a few times already today and this morning, we pray that you'd help us uh, to treat others in the same way. Just as we've been forgiven, help us to forgive. Just as you have been generous with us, help us to be generous. Help us to fulfill the calling that you've placed on our lives so that we might know what it truly means to be image bearers and make us more and more into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.